Today's reading is from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection, who, from, oh no, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is today's reading. It is with joyful trepidation that I endeavor to preach through the book of Romans. It is a dense treatise of systematic theology, a grand edifice of lofty theological ideas and vocabulary. And whenever I've heard a pastor friend of mine or another eldership team is planning to preach through Romans, I have always asked something along the lines of, how's your church going to handle that? Many, in my opinion have avoided a verse-by-verse exposition of Romans precisely because of its distinctively doctrinal nature and the intense clarity it offers into the offensive gospel of salvation by grace alone. That God chooses to save from among his enemies those who are guilty, vile, and powerless to lift a finger to do God's will or to better their spiritual lot. Sinners who do not merit his favor, but are saved by God's grace alone, through God-given faith alone. In the atoning sacrifice, God alone can provide Christ Jesus alone in order that all glory and honor would be given to God alone. This offensive gospel, this biblical gospel, is at the core of Paul's letter to the Romans. But the essential argument being made, and which is introduced here in the opening of the letter, is that the grace alone gospel, this gospel that is the work of God alone that Paul preaches, is the only power which will bring about obedience in God's people. A great deal of the conversation around Romans revolves around justification by faith. That is that sinners are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. But the grand dissertation of Romans is that sanctification is also certainly produced by that same faith also. That faith will produce obedience. This is the basic thesis of Romans. And Paul states this thesis in Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this passage has commonly been misunderstood as referring to evangelism in the sense that I should not be too ashamed uh, to share the gospel with others, which is, is certainly true, but misses the point here. 
And because he preached a gospel of a salvation which precedes works of righteousness, Paul's detractors were accusing him of promoting a shameful message of lawlessness or disobedient living. And so Paul is not stating here that he is not ashamed of Jesus, but that he will not be put to shame. He will not be put to shame because of the grace alone gospel, because it is powerful and will result in righteousness. It will result in transformed living. This is the main argument of the book of Romans. And faith in the grace alone gospel is powerful to produce obedience in those who believe. Some worry if we preach too much grace, well, then people won't obey. Paul argues the opposite here in Romans. The more free your gospel, the more transformative. The more you understand the undeserved love of God that has been expressed to you, church, the more you will walk in obedience. When we fail to walk in obedience, we don't just need to pick up our, pull up our bootstraps and try to do better. We have to see what is the gospel that I'm missing that I am not living this way in response to God's love for me. It is Paul's stated purpose in addressing the church in Rome, verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith. And this is exactly how the letter is ended. So this is uh, bookends on either side. Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Do you see that? God is going to strengthen you according to this gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. Catch this. To bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So throughout all the middle sections of the letter, Paul argues the case for his thesis. He defends it against any possible objections. He spells out some of its ethical implications. But the primary purpose for the letter of Romans was to ensure that their understanding of the gospel was sufficient for real transformation. That sanctified by faith, they would constitute an acceptable sacrifice to God. This is explicitly stated in Romans 15, 15, and 16. He says, But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles for in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So this is why Paul writes predominantly that the Gentiles or non-Jewish people, you and I, would be an acceptable sacrifice, that our lives would be lived as a living sacrifice to Jesus by not our own works and our own strength and our own intelligence and our own morality, but the gospel producing radical transformation in wicked sinners. There are a couple of other reasons for this letter as well, which are important for it for its fuller understanding. Uh, nearly everything Paul writes, especially here in the greeting, serves double purpose. In the time Paul wrote, there were tensions in the churches of Rome due to some socio-political circumstances. When 
Rome conquered Judea, a substantial portion of the Jewish population adamantly refused to offer sacrifices to the Roman emperor. This was the common method. They would conquer people. They would be forced to offer sacrifices to the Roman emperor as a deity. And the Jewish population, some portion, even under the threat of death, refused. But they were able, after many of them died, to negotiate a compromise with the Roman regime called the Pact of the Jews, which allowed them to maintain their monotheistic beliefs to worship only one God and not worship the emperor without any interference from the Roman authorities. But when divisions arose from among the Jewish population over those who accepted Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah or Savior, the Christians... Uh, were often thrown out of the synagogues, and it was made clear to the Roman authorities that they were not of the Jewish religion and therefore not protected by the Pact of the Jews. And this is what actually led to the earliest persecutions of the Christians in Rome. The Jews said to other Jews, these were all Jewish people in the synagogues, the ones who became Christians, they threw them out and said, hey, look at those guys, they're worshiping one God and not worshiping the emperor, and they're not Jews. They were thrown out. Such was the disturbance that in an order believed to be issued in AD 49, Emperor Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, which according to Acts 18.2 also included the Jews who had accepted Christ. The, the Roman historian Suetonius writes, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. Now, most scholars think here that Suetonius confused the name Christo, Christ, with the name Cresto, because Cresto was a very popular name, uh, and Christ wasn't a name at all. So he, he gets it wrong, but he's, these Jews are always fighting about Cresto, he says. He knows very little about the Christian faith. Uh, so the Jews were all cast out. Can you imagine? This is the power the emperor has. He's like, these guys are always making trouble. Just tell them all to leave. They all have to go. Kicks them all out. But as a result of this, in the, the church in Rome, which had been uh, almost completely a Jewish church, very rapidly became an entirely Gentile or non-Jewish church. But then Claudius died only five years later. And the Jewish believers were then allowed back into their homes in Rome. And so they came back to their church, the church they had started essentially, but now it was a very different church. They came back and the, and the church has, has changed completely. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. One can imagine that the music style and the selection of the worship songs has changed. Uh, the order of the service has a whole new flavor. And can you believe it? Someone brought ham to the potluck. And I think that lady's dress might be made out of more than one material. Oh my goodness. Attentions resulted from the Jewish Christians being offended by the Gentile practices that had entered into the church in their absence. Absence. And since Roman views of Judaism were actually very negative, the Gentile believers seemed to be carrying prejudice against their Jewish brothers and sisters. So the Jews have very particular ways of dressing very particular ways of grooming, very particular ways of eating, and they, they're all very looked down on in the Greco-Roman world. And so the, the Gentiles in the church would, would look down on them, we see in Romans. 
real issues might also have resulted from the fact that most of the Christians, estimates are as many as 60% of them, were either slaves or former slaves. So I don't know what all the cultural clashes were between the two groups, but what we do know is that it produced racial tensions in a church which God had called to be one people, one family. And so Paul's intention in the Roman letter was also to help quell this conflict. A third important reason for Paul's letter is stated in Romans 15, 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. It was Paul's goal to use the Roman churches as an outpost for his mission trip to Spain, a place where the gospel had not yet gone at all. But this would only work if he could gain their support by demonstrating the truth of his gospel and defend it against his critics. And in order to partner with the church in Rome, Paul not only needed their financial support, but he had to make sure that they had the gospel in common. But he also needed a church that would be unified across racial divisions. And so the attempt to rally both the Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome to the Pauline gospel begins in this weighty theological salutation. The greeting is just chock full. In fact, I have to skip through some important stuff just to preach one message on the greeting. The first verse is, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. You, you, you could, and many have, literally preached a sermon on this, just this verse. It is that theologically dense. Not only is this letter of Paul's inspired by God and infallible, but it is a masterwork of literary genius. When it comes to beginning a sermon series through Romans, we have to talk about pacing. One of my favorite preachers took seven years to get through this book. And while that is probably the perfect number, we're going to try to get through it at a, at a much faster pace. So I won't spend a long time talking this morning about Paul's conversion or his calling as an apostle. Uh, we could talk about all those things for quite a long time. But what we do need to notice here this morning for our edification is that with one exception, Paul always lists at least one of his co-workers in the greeting sections of his letters. And so was Paul alone when he wrote Romans? Actually, throughout the letter, we see that it's clear that he was not alone. Romans 16.21 makes it clear that Timothy was with him, along with others. So why are they not mentioned as per Paul's usual etiquette? And this uncommon greeting is likely designed to highlight Paul's apostolic authority. That means that he was one who was uniquely commissioned by Christ Jesus himself as his chosen and authorized representative of the gospel. So Paul was not a self-ordained apostle. Paul didn't feel a calling. You know, sometimes we misuse that word. We say, I'm called. You know, that means that we have a desire to do something. Paul was literally knocked off his horse by Jesus and told, you're going to go do this for me now. So Paul was called, not self-appointed, not sent by men or a church, but by God. And this is also why he refers to the good news as the gospel of God, which is a rare way of putting it in the Bible. It is not some man-made gospel. It's not something he came up with. It's not his creative work. It comes from God himself. 
So this whole first verse is an appeal to divine authority. Even the title of servant, or literally slave of Christ Jesus, conveys the idea of an office that was formerly possessed by outstanding persons in the Old Testament, such as Moses, Joshua, Abraham, David, and the prophets. These were the men who were called the servant of God, or the slave of God. Normally, we consider slavery uh, to not be such an honorable title, but some of the slaves of Caesar in this day wielded more power than free aristocrats, and some aristocratic women even married into slavery in Caesar's household to improve their status. It all depends on who you are a slave of. To be a slave of the supreme Lord Jesus Christ was no dishonor, but a high status reserved for the prophets and other godly leaders uh, while still carrying that connotation of total humility, devotion, and obedience. So, if, church, if we say, I am a slave of Christ, you're making a bold claim. Is your life marked by total humility, devotion, and obedience? But by calling himself a slave before mentioning his apostleship, Paul emphasizes that the authority he is exercising is a derived authority. He speaks with authority as one under authority. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, an essential background for the word gospel is found in the Septuagint, which, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was used in Jesus' day and in Paul's day as well. The verb uh, evangelizo or euangelizo, which was where we get the English word evangelize or the work of an evangelist, is this word gospel. It is found 23 times in the Old Testament and uniformly means to bring or proclaim good news. Usually, in the context of proclaiming good news about God's salvation. It is vitally important this morning that we see that the gospel Paul preached was founded thoroughly in the Old Testament. There was not a new gospel in the New Testament. It is the good news, he says, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. If you ever wondered what the importance of the Old Testament is, why don't we just stick with the New? Well, the New Testament is literally just building on the gospel that was proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. If you do not understand the way that the gospel is proclaimed in the Old Testament, you have not fully understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. An examination of the references Paul makes when he finds the gospel in Old Testament Scripture shows that he found it foreshadowed in Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, and Habakkuk. Mostly the prophets. Paul never conceives of his gospel as antithetical or contrary to the Old Testament. He never conceives of it as something new that he's come up with. This is the gospel of God from the Old Testament Scriptures. He understands that the gospel of Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament in a way that surpasses all expectations of both Jews and Gentiles. 
The gospel Paul preaches is a fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. The good news that Isaiah proclaimed about Israel's restoration finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Lord. And in the forgiveness of sins accomplished in Jesus as the servant of the Lord. So we know now some of what Paul is saying, but the background information we looked at this morning should help us to understand some of why Paul is saying it. He makes the link between the gospel he preaches and the Old Testament Israel explicit. He's going to argue that the gospel he preaches both establishes and fulfills the Old Testament law. And so against his critics... Remember, they're, they're accusing Paul of being anti-law or, or promoting disobedience. He's arguing that the, his is not an anti-law gospel. Also remember the context of the tensions between the Jewish and Gentile believers um, in the church in Rome. Paul starts by reminding them, the Gentiles in particular, that the gospel he preaches is a distinctively Jewish gospel. How can you look down on the people whom you owe for your salvation. And Paul goes back to the Old Testament again and again in this letter to make it clear with over 50 quotations of the Old Testament in this letter. So by appealing to the Old Testament so extensively, Paul is making it clear that the Gentiles have been converted to a Jewish gospel, which should give any of the Gentiles in the church in Rome who are feeling superior to their Jewish brothers and sisters quite the reality check. Verse 3, still talking about the gospel of God in English. This is one long run-on sentence. The gospel of God concerning His Son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Again, for the same reasons that Paul emphasized the Jewish nature of the gospel, he also highlights the Jewish lineage of Jesus according to His human nature. Jesus, as the son of David, fulfilled the promise made in the Old Testament regarding a future ruler from David's line. See, we have to see that all these promises about the restoration of Israel all talk about Israel's king who will rule them, the descendant of David. They all talk about receiving the Holy Spirit and each one having a relationship with God with no priestly mediator other than God himself. And so, Paul is explaining that everything that is promised in the Old Testament, this gospel repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament, is now fulfilled in Jesus. The prophets associated their good news, their gospel of Israel's restoration with the coming of the promised Davidic king and the hope of the resurrection. And so, by calling Jesus the Son, Paul assigns to Jesus what had been the designation for Israel and Israel's king throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is God's true son, the true and better Israel, Israel's true and better king. But if Jesus is God's true son, then membership in the people of God depends on being rightly related to Jesus. As Paul writes elsewhere, Galatians 3, 13 to 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
And it continues in verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so if the Gentiles are reminded that theirs is a Jewish faith with its foundation in the Jewish Scriptures, then the Jewish believers, some of who had major concerns about the Gentile believers and how they could possibly live moral lives without the law, are reminded that the Gentiles, too, have access to sonship in the very same manner in Christ Jesus. In verse 4 it continues, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I don't like to criticize the translations because you can rely on your translation, but the translators do something shifty here, and I can respect their intentions if not their actions. Where it says here, declared to be the Son of God, the word translated declared does not actually ever mean declared. Never. It means appointed. Now, the translators want to protect you from a heresy called adoptionism, where people had once believed that God adopted a human man to be his divine son and then empowered him by the Holy Spirit. And so they want to protect you from that by saying, oh, it's, it's declared, not appointed. Unfortunately, in their zeal, the translators have also protected you from, from some sound biblical theology. Uh, to understand how Jesus could be appointed as the Son of God, in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, we need to have a biblical understanding of the title, Son of God. As I mentioned earlier, This title in the Hebrew Bible refers to either the Davidic king, so that's David or his descendant king, or to the nation of Israel. Many times, the Son of God in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is Israel or Israel's king. And since then, in extra-biblical writing, in many Jewish texts, the Son of God was used extensively as a messianic title. So they're looking forward to this descendant of David who will be the Messiah, the one who will save them. And this Messiah throughout the the Jewish scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, and in Jewish writings between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this term Son of God is used to refer to the Messiah. So even in the New Testament, the title Son of God is clearly used as a title for the Messiah rather than an ontological designation, which means rather than to describe the nature of Jesus as a Son of God, it's describing who He is as the Messiah. So in Matthew 26, 63, without any teaching of Jesus saying that He is the Son of God, the high priest asks Jesus if he is the Messiah, when he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So the high priest in Israel at that point doesn't have an an idea that Jesus might be God himself. He's saying, are you the Messiah? And in John 149, Nathaniel recognizes Jesus as the Messiah when he answers, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. See, on both of these, it's connecting this idea, Son of God, with who the Messiah is. 
And so in Romans 1.4, Jewish readers would not have read Son of God as a reference to Jesus' identity or ontology, but rather as a reference to His unique messianic role. The background for for Christ's appointment as Son of God is in Psalm 2.7, where David's heir is appointed to be the anointed king. This psalm is quoted twice in reference to Jesus in the book of Hebrews, and again in Acts 13, 32, and 33, which we'll read. And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But for Jesus to have been appointed or begotten as the Son of God is not in reference to His divine nature. One cannot be appointed to be God. One cannot be begotten to be God or birthed in some way. This is talking about Jesus' human identity. As true Israel... And Israel's true king, Jesus was appointed to be God's son in power at his resurrection from the dead. Crowned as the messianic king and exalted to a position of power and authority that he did not occupy previously. So three New Testament passages talk about Jesus being begotten today. Today I have begotten you as the son. And also, he is appointed to be the Son of God. This is because it is the position of the rulership over this world. The new king of Israel, now crowned and sitting at the right hand of the Father. The resurrection was what proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God. It proclaimed God's vindication of the crucified Jesus as the true Messiah. Acts 2.36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection of Jesus indicates, therefore, that God has begun to fulfill his promises to Israel. The saving promises made to the nation have become a reality in and through the Son of God, the true Israel, the true King, Jesus the Messiah. So this is why it can say he was appointed to be the Son of God or begotten as the Son of God. Now, the Roman meaning of Son of God is quite different, actually quite a lot more like our meaning would be today, someone who had a God as their father. In the culture in which they lived, they knew that the Son of God was a title commonly applied to Caesar. As an imperial title, it spoke of the emperor's divine right to rule. But the Jews in Rome would have been well aware of this connotation, as would the Gentile believers within the church be well aware of the fact that the title was often used to refer to the Jewish Messiah. So to the early Christian audience, they would have read Son of God as pointing both to Jesus' role as the Messiah and His nature as supreme Lord over all. Verse 5, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 
This brings us back to that main theme, the grand theme of Romans, which we looked at to start. In Paul's theology, all obedience flows from faith. A changed lordship occurs for those who embrace the gospel. They are no longer lord over their own lives. They no longer have a, mass, a human master, but now they have Jesus. True faith always results in obedience. As James wrote, James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, Paul and, and James have oftentimes been juxtaposed against each other, but when we read Romans in context, we see that they are saying the exact same thing. Paul is saying this faith in the true gospel, this grace alone gospel, will produce works. And this means that when we, church, lack righteousness in any area of life, the solution is not only to try harder, but is to consider what is lacking in our faith. Many religions, some even considering themselves to be Christian, will teach you how to do better. But true faith Christians are taught, Romans 12, to, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So it's not, here's the rules, do better, but be transformed so that it flows out of who you are, who God is changing you to be. Faith established in Christ through Paul's gospel will not fail to produce obedience in God's people. But then Paul tells us why he's doing this, and it may surprise you. For the sake of his name. Bringing the Gentiles to obedient faith in Jesus was not the ultimate purpose of Paul's mission. All of this would be for the sake of his name. God saves a people for his name. That is for his glory or honor. John Stott wrote, The highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, burning, passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Church, if we lack motivation for sharing the good news of the gospel, if we lack motivation for living a righteous life, it is because we lack this zeal for the glory of our God. And if we lack zeal for the glory of God, we have not believed the true gospel. If we're not driven to bring glory to Christ's name, we have believed some other gospel. Paul, remember, he's so early in the church. I mean, this is still one of the apostles, alive and kicking. And he's running into heresies left, right, and center. False gospels that are no gospel at all. Gospels that are not producing genuine obedience. Church, are we a people that has believed a true gospel that is producing a zeal for the name? As we think about our priorities in life, is our first concern for the glory of God. When we think about how will people see me when I do this, are we thinking about my reputation? Or are we thinking how will this affect the glory of God? Is our goal to bring glory to His name in all that we do? 
Let me uh, uh, directly offend the humanistic thinking that continuously assaults the church. Humanity is not the center of the universe. God is. Salvation is not about you, not foremost. We are saved, God willing, to bring glory to His name. That is what we were created for. That is our created purpose. And because it is our created purpose to glorify God, it is the greatest joy and fulfillment a human can hope for. To live for the glory of God is the most fulfilling, most joyful thing that you can do as a human because that was your created purpose, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When we take ourselves out of that center stage and we consider ourselves, as the Bible does, like pottery that is created for a purpose and we see that our purpose is a wonderful one, a joyful one, a fulfilling one, I am created by God for enjoyment eternity of glorifying God by enjoying Him. I am so excited, but it sets me aside. It devastates our humanistic thinking. We were created by God to glorify Him. And so Paul says, I'm excited to share the good news of the gospel with Gentiles to make them a a sacrifice worthy of the name for His name's sake. This is what should drive us, church. If we are driven, even in our um, evangelism, driven first and foremost by care for people, we do not have our priorities straight. We should care for people, don't get me wrong. But it should be first and foremost for the glory of Christ Jesus, whom we love. Romans 1, 6, and we'll read to 7, the first sentence in 7. The nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Here the word called denotes the effective call of God accompanying the preaching of the gospel. This message designed to bring about the obedience of faith is for people from every nation who have been called out of darkness to belong to Jesus Christ. The word all is used more times in Romans than in any other letter. It stresses the inclusion of the Gentiles and the Jews, these these scattered groups in the church, the inclusion of them both into the people of God. No people group or ethnicity is to be excluded. And to say that all might be those who are loved by God and called to be saints is to apply the language to the church, Jew and Gentile alike, which previously in Scripture had always been reserved for Israel as God's elect people. The apostles do this constantly. Peter, most of all, but Paul does this as well. He takes titles that always spoke of Israel, and he begins to apply those to the Jewish and Gentile church. Ethnicity was no longer a bar from being a part of the people of God. And so he applies these terms. Those who are loved by God, those are his saints or his ones set apart for a purpose, his holy ones. Those are now people from every nation, all those in Rome. Since Jesus is the true Israel, those who belong to him constitute the people of God. 
Here we observe Paul's interpretation of the Old Testament. The promises focusing on Israel as a nation are now extended to all who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Paul uses the expression holy people or saints extensively in his letters as a designation for all believers, not the special ones, not the especially holy ones that can perform a couple of miracles. All of God's people are called to be saints, his holy ones, who are set apart or consecrated for God. The clear expectation being that believers will be holy, not only in the sense of being set apart, but also in the sense of being pure and blameless. Jesus says that he's returning for his blameless church. This is the work of the Spirit as he applies the gospel we find here in Romans. And finally, Paul's greeting ends, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Letters typically included prayers or wishes invoking deities on behalf of the recipients. This was a common way to end a letter in the Greco-Roman world and amongst the Jews, to end the letter to, to bless someone in the name of their God, to wish them health or welfare by invoking the deity. Paul here blesses the believers by invoking not only God the Father, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. He also, again, it's masterful. He's including the Jews and the Gentiles in so many different ways. He then merges the typical Jewish greeting, shalom, peace, with a typical Greco-Roman greeting with a slight twist. The standard uh, greeting among the Roman Gentiles would have been simply karain, greetings. But Paul's word grace, charis, reads like a kind of Christian wordplay on the standard formula, invoking the favor of God upon his audience. So grace and peace. This is the Jewish wishing of well-being as well as the Roman wishing of well-being. But he's changed it slightly. So instead of reading greetings, it reads grace. Both generally mean well-being and wholeness to you. But the order here is significance. Significant, sorry. Only those who are recipients of God's grace, those called according to His purpose, will enjoy his peace. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel itself, church, is an offer of peace with God. This is the good news. The good news that we believe, the good news that we proclaim, this offer was proclaimed by Jesus Christ through his apostles, peace with God. Grace and peace with God comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I want to leave you just with a rundown, a summary of, of what we've learned in these first seven verses given to me by one of my mentors, Dr. Cooley. The gospel is promised in the Jewish scriptures. It pertains to a Jewish Messiah, verse 3. It proclaims a risen Lord and produces the obedience of faith, verse 5. 
in those who belong to Jesus, verse 6, who are loved by God and called to be His holy ones, verse 7. To state it in another way, the gospel commands us to trust the Scriptures because the Scriptures promise this gospel. It commands us, verse 3, to follow a Jewish Messiah. It commands us, verse 4, to surrender to a risen Lord who is our Master. And to let our faith, verse 5, produce obedience. Verse 6 is by living as those who belong to Jesus, who are loved by God, verse 7, and who are called to be a holy people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your magnificent word. One could spend a lifetime in Romans joyfully if they were as nerdy as I am. Lord, I I pray that you would produce the obedience of faith in our church. Our whole purpose in, in what might perhaps be two years of preaching in Romans, is that you would produce the obedience of faith in us, O God. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. May we know the goodness of your gospel as Paul presents it in clear and offensive ways. And may we be submitted to your lordship. May we believe what you have spoken and live according to it and walk in obedience. Forgive us for where we have turned to our own wisdom. And many do in what Romans has to say. They're going to say, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound good. I'm going to believe this instead. God, I pray that you would discipline us and bring us into alignment with your word. Transform our hearts and minds, I pray, so that we would be your holy people, set apart for your work, zealous for your name, Transform us, I pray. Amen.